What is grace? Grace is community. Grace is passion. Grace is for everyone. Today we continue our series on foods in the Bible. Last week we looked at how bread uh, is this humble food that has come to represent Jesus. We had communion recalling the bread and wine that Jesus ate with his disciples at the Last Supper. And even saw how people at Grace are being the bread of life for this world. Some of the members in our church are doing this phenomenal work providing physical life as they care for others, as well as spiritual life in feeding the souls of the people that they meet. When Jesus is at the center of our lives, bringing life to others is what we do. And now we transition to our next food from the Bible, meat. Uh, Now, we're not going to spend time arguing the merits or faults of vegetarianism, although you may want to read the first chapter of Daniel for more insight on that if you're curious. Uh, No, instead we are looking at a special kind of meat, and that is meat that is offered to idols. Now, you might think that's weird, because who eats meat offered to idols these days? And as I wondered out loud about how to illustrate this problem, my wife had a a brilliant suggestion. She said, why don't you have an American idol bless your food? And I thought, that was so great. So I looked it up. There's a service called Cameo where you can get famous people to say happy birthday or to motivate your employees. And I thought, I wonder if I can get them to bless my food. Well, it turns out the only American idol on Cameo is William Hung, who has been called the worst contestant the show has ever had. And when I told my wife Emily this, she said, no, don't do it. That's a bad idea. And I agree with her. That is a bad idea. But I did it anyways. Uh, If you check out our YouTube page after church, you can watch William Hung on American Idol, Bless Your Food. We also have a reaction video from Emily on there that you might enjoy as well. So that's posted on our website. I invite you to check that out afterward. So anyways, what good is a discussion about something we never do anymore? Well, I dare say this topic very well may change your life. We're going to hear our scripture from 1 Corinthians 8 about how the Apostle Paul responded to these reports of Christian converts going to parties and festivals where there was meat that had been offered to an idol. This meat then was prayed for and blessed by other religious groups. What would Paul say? What would he do about this group that felt free to eat this meat? Which side would he support? We're going to walk through his answer to see what it means for us today. This is 1 Corinthians 8, the whole chapter. Hear now the word of the Lord from Merrill. Now concerning food sacrificed to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Anyone who claims to know something does not yet have the necessary knowledge, but anyone who loves God is known by him. Hence, as to the eating of foods offered to idols, we know that no idol in the world really exists and that there is no God but one. Indeed, even though there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as in fact there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. 
It is not everyone, however, who has this knowledge. Since some have become so accustomed to idols until now, they still think of the food they eat as food offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not bring us close to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if others see you, who possess knowledge, eating in the temple of an idol, might they not, since their conscience is weak, be encouraged to the point of eating food sacrificed to idols? So by your knowledge, those weak believers for whom Christ died are destroyed. But when you thus sin against members of your family and wound their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food is a cause of their falling, I will never eat meat, so that I may not cause one of them to fall. Exodus 16.3, the Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the flesh pots and ate our fill of bread, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. This is the word of the Lord for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, may we be an inclusive community passionately following Jesus Christ. Work in us a new way of living with our brothers and sisters as we consider what it means to honor the weak among us. Be our rock and our redeemer this day. Amen. In general, I consider myself a, a worry-free person. I don't get too worked up about stressful situations. I know that there is only so much that I can control about work or home life, so I don't sweat the small stuff. I take it all in stride. But some people aren't like that. They worry about all the details. It keeps them up at night thinking about the pluses and minuses of a situation. My wife, Emily, is a very capable person. She has taught at the preschool and elementary levels for years, and she always does a fabulous job. When it comes to church, she is a natural in Sunday school and vacation Bible school. She can do anything, uh, and I am incredibly blessed to have her as a partner in ministry. One year, the church we were in didn't have a director for their vacation Bible school program, so I asked Emily to do it. She said yes, and the first few months were fine. As we got closer and closer to the week of fun and games and lessons for the children, it wasn't so fine. Emily started having some tough nights of sleep. She started to worry about how decisions she was making would be perceived by others. I don't know if you know this, but some people can judge the pastor's wife in really harsh, unnecessary ways. When we were just a couple of weeks out from the start date, Emily came to me in tears. She was overwhelmed with the burden of the decisions she had to make for the hundred or so people that would be a part of the Vacation Bible School program. I told her, don't worry, I'll take over as the director for the program she didn't have to be in charge of the decision, so she would still have to help me, though, to make things happen. And that sounds like I'm a real nice guy, doesn't it? Except Emily knew better than that. She knows that if I'm in charge, I don't really care all that much about the details. I'll just make the big decisions and let the little stuff uh, play itself out. Uh, after a few days of me leading the effort with Vacation Bible School, uh, she came to me again she, and she said, Brian, this really isn't working out. 
you're not helping to solve the problems with these smaller decisions. You're actually making it worse. In the end, she took over running VBS again because she found my way of doing it to be completely inept. Uh, now, I'll tell you, I don't mind not running VBS. That's a win for me. But I do realize that I wasn't able to help Emily in the way that she needed to be helped. As the Apostle Paul would say, I didn't become weak so that I might win the weak. And I don't mean that Emily is weak, far from it. But in this situation where she needed my help, I didn't bend to help her. I missed a chance to serve her in the way she needed me to. Now some of you might say, wait, hold on here. Why should you serve her? Why should you do Emily's job at Vacation Bible School? And that is a beautiful question. It is actually the perfect question. To what degree are we obligated to help others? Last week we talked about being the bread of life for others as Jesus is the bread of life for us. But what does that actually mean? Most of us want to be helpful, but how do we get there? Where's the line for how much help we give to others? Strangely enough, the biblical answer for this question comes from this weird situation of meat being offered to idols. Uh, let me explain. As the Apostle Paul is writing to the Corinthians, he is addressing a list of different controversies. There's immorality, lawsuits, marital problems. All of this is happening inside the church, and he's trying to set them straight. Stop this. Stop. Stop. This is not the way of Christ. Then he describes this next problem of idols and spends three chapters on it. It's the biggest chunk of this entire book, and we do ourselves a disservice by ignoring it. He is concerned about these Jewish folks, particularly Gentiles, who have converted to Judaism. They are not sure what this new Christian life is supposed to look like, so they are still doing some of the things they used to do. They are smart enough to know that God is superior to everything else we might call a God. All these other beings are idols and essentially mean nothing. So if you sacrifice meat to an idol, who cares? It means literally nothing because idols are literally non-existent. These people who possess this knowledge are the strong ones. They get it. They know idols don't exist. But it actually gets more complicated than that. These strong ones are eating meat, which means they are wealthier. Most folks in this time would never get a chance to eat meat except at festivals. So the strong ones are rich, and they have friends who serve meat for dinner. They have business partners that invite them to a meal with meat as they talk business. These strong folks think there's nothing wrong with continuing these relationships. God isn't trying to put me out of business or trying to prevent me from having these friendships. God isn't angry if I go to a wedding for my family and friends just because meat is served there. Now, Paul, he doesn't necessarily disagree with them. Idols don't have power, and God cares about your work, your friends, and your family. But there is a line here. Just because you are free from the problem of idolatry doesn't mean your neighbor is. Just because you get it doesn't mean the person around you does, too. He says, if others see you eating this meat, might they not be encouraged to the point of eating food sacrificed to idols? He's saying your actions 
have an impact on others. So you better be sure of what you are doing. One more verse. But when you thus sin against members of your family and wound their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food is a cause of their falling, I will never eat meat so that I may not cause one of them to fall. Do you see the implication here? If our actions can cause a person who is weak in their faith to stumble, if it wounds them, stop. You have to consider your actions from the perspective of other people and not just that. You have to think about what the weak and immature person might think about what you are doing. That is a huge challenge to all of us as Christians. If your actions are driving people away from God, even if you are right, you are wrong. I think this goes double for leaders in the church, but this is tough on all of us. Let's go back to the situation of work and family and weddings. The Apostle Paul is saying, look, if any of these things happen in a temple built to honor these false gods, you can't go. That's understandable, but it means some business parties you can't go to. Some family functions are off limits. Even weddings and federal holidays are not okay if the celebration is done the wrong way. Then in 1 Corinthians 10, he talks about other situations. What if you buy meat in the market and you don't know if the meat is sacrificed to an idol? What if you are at a friend's house and again, you don't know? He says, that's fine. But if you find out it is sacrificed to an idol, stop. Don't let your freedom and knowledge be a cause for someone else to fall. So today, where we don't really sacrifice meat to the gods, what does it mean for us? The question becomes, what if you don't know what you are doing is going to cause someone else to sin? If you don't know, and you find out your actions are hurting another, stop. Don't just bulldoze ahead as if your actions don't mean anything for others. You have to think about the implications. In fact, his final point is not, you strong ones got it right, but don't forget about the little guy. No, he is saying you strong ones are actually not strong enough. You are free from the letter of the law, free from legalism, but if you use your freedom to injure others, you've missed the whole point of Christian freedom. If you are radically free in Christ, you won't lord your freedom over those who don't have the same knowledge as you. You'll bend over backwards to help them. Paul is saying, don't just consider what is right for you, Consider what is right for your brother and your sister, for everyone around you. The real question for Paul is not whether it is right or wrong to eat meat sacrificed to idols. The real question is, what does Christian love look like? He wants principled, ethical thinking to permeate how we Christians treat one another. It all comes down to this basic Christian principle, 1 Corinthians 10, 24, do not seek what is good for yourself, but the good of your neighbor. Unfortunately, the Christian church 
got this wrong for years afterward uh, from the time of the Apostle Paul. The church couldn't weigh Paul's words carefully and instead implemented a total ban on meat. They became legalistic and cut themselves off from the larger community of Corinth. That's hardly any better. You have this good news of God's love for the world and you decide to keep it for yourself so you'll never offend anyone ever? That's just as wrong as eating the meat. Paul is calling us to a better way, to love each other. Always love each other. Don't offend or hurt each other. Just keep building up the community. And he ends by saying, the weak Christians among you are not the obstacle. They are an opportunity to exercise your freedom in love for the community. This is a powerful message for us today. How many times do churches find themselves arguing over the details? Whether it's the time of worship or the style of worship. I've heard of arguments over paint colors and pulpits or a few hundred dollars from the church budget. Uh, maybe my favorite is the argument over the color of the carpet in the church. Uh, one pastor said his church was fighting over whether they would pick cranberry or red wine. Uh, if you don't know, they are essentially exactly the same color. Uh, finally, the pastor stood up and said, this is not important. It's been two months. Just pick one. And he left the meeting. A week later, the carpet was installed. And to this day, he has no idea what color they actually picked because it doesn't matter. What matters is the mission of the church, loving others as God loves us. we got to elevate our game, growing in maturity and faith so we can love others better. Let's not waste our time on things that are not important. The key here is not material things. The key is the people of God. You could put just about any argument you want into this scenario. Want to argue whether the church should be closed or not because of COVID or snow. Uh, sure, but you better remember the goal is to love the people. Want to argue about wearing masks? Same thing, whatever you want, but you better exercise your right to love the people. Worried people aren't growing enough in their faith or we are trying too hard to make people grow in their faith. That's a worthy topic of conflict, but in the midst of all of that, we have to love the community. How can you transform these different kinds of struggles we might have with others into a chance to love them? Well, I think of Alma, who called me the other week to get in touch with the Boy Scouts for some help. She leads the Meals on Wheels program in our area, and her team noticed every time it snowed, one person didn't have anyone to shovel their driveway or sidewalk. Sometimes with ice and snow, it was even dangerous for her people to go and serve that person food. So she got to work trying to fix the problem. When I had a chance to talk to her about it later, she told me how this person isn't paying for their meals. They had to go on disability and couldn't work anymore, so they have no money to pay for the food while they try and receive their disability payments. I told her right away, don't stop delivering food to this person. If we have to, the church will pay for it until he's able to get his disability check. She looked at me the way only Alma can, and she said, we would never stop delivering food. She knows what it means to love. She knows that our love for God and God alone is expressed in how we love each other and how we love the people out there too. 
let's end here. There was a, a mother just across the border in New York named Victoria. She was driving along the highway on a cold winter night a few years ago, and something bounced off of the road and flew up into her windshield. Some teenagers had purchased a frozen 20-pound turkey with a stolen credit card, and as they were driving along the highway, the 18-year-old Ryan threw the turkey out the back window. When it hit Victoria's windshield, it hit with such force that it went through the glass windshield and smashed into her face, breaking every bone in her face. She woke up in the hospital weeks later with no knowledge of what had happened. After a dozen surgeries, she had titanium plates and wire mesh implanted to hold her face in place. After she finished her medication, the emotional weight of it all caught up to her and she was flooded with tears asking, why did this happen? Why would God allow such an awful thing to take place? Initially, she thought maybe by it being her instead of someone else, she may have saved someone's life. But it turned out God had a much bigger plan for her. Victoria met with Ryan's lawyer and after talking with him found out that Ryan could go to jail for 25 years for what he did. But she asked for a lighter sentence. She asked for mercy. And she wanted um, something better for Ryan in his life. In the courtroom, Ryan seemed to so frail in his oversized suit with his head hung down in shame, and her heart went out to him. When the trial was over, he walked over to her, and the court officers were ready to pounce when he got to Victoria, he stood there and cried and cried and cried. He said, I never meant for this to happen. I prayed for you every day. I'm so glad you are doing well. Victoria came over to him and hugged him. The teen that had stolen weeks of her life and caused years of irreparable damage. And she hugged him. She told him, it's okay. Just make your life the best that it can be. Her request for leniency meant instead of 25 years, he got the minimum of six months and five years of probation. Victoria, choosing love in that moment, had an impact on Ryan. He did community service, speaking to the youth, and even after he completed his time, he continued to volunteer for years afterward. Victoria helped co-author a book called No Room for Vengeance, Injustice and Healing. Instead of bitterness and hatred or always asking why me, she chose love. And love is the path to real justice, to truly making things right. And it brings healing for ourselves and for others. It's the road the Apostle Paul calls us to in whatever debate we find ourselves embroiled in. It's the path of Jesus. Forgive them, Lord. They don't know what they're doing. In focusing on the community of God, caring for each other, we learn what it looks like to love the world out there the same way God loves us. Don't let arguments over meat or masks or even life's harshest suffering pull you away from the love of God. Give up your right just as Jesus did, so that you may do all to the glory of God. Amen. Amen.
for everything happening at Grace, check out our website at gumc.org.